you are new around here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to bring God's Word to us today. And I'm, I'm thrilled about it because we're landing a plane today. We are finishing up a study in the book of Romans. This is it. This is it. We're on the home stretch. So if you have your Bible or a Bible on device, go to Romans chapter 16. While you're doing that, you can also pull the study guide out of your worship folder, which is you were handed that on your way in, right? I have heard that I've heard the book of Romans referred to as the greatest letter ever written. And it very well might be that. And for nine months, we've been walking together as a church, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, through this letter. And today we come to the end, the conclusion. We come to Paul's final words. And it's been quite a journey. And I think even if nobody, none of you benefited from it at all, I know I have benefited from it greatly. I'm so glad that our elders commissioned us a year ago to take this on as a church, and I know I've been blessed. And to me, it seemed that finishing up Romans warranted some kind of celebration, right? Something fitting for the occasion. But when I asked our creative team for some ideas, the best they could come up with for finishing the book of Romans was to have a toga party in the lobby after we're done. And you can thank me that I nipped that idea in the bud. And we will not be doing that. We thought about having a big Jenga competition with this stage backdrop and having kids come up and pull boxes out until it all collapsed. Maybe we'll do that. I don't know. But it does feel to me like getting to the finish line of this book is a milestone achievement worth celebrating as we near the end of this journey. And so concluding thoughts now from the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter, found at the end of Romans chapter 16. And I just think it's really interesting how he closes it, closes it out. Because there's a final warning, and then there's a final promise, then there's a final benediction, followed by some final greetings, and then finally, a final doxology that just kind of wraps it all up in appropriate fashion and kind of ties a bow on things at the end. So that's where we're going this morning. Hope you're ready for that. First, let's look at a final warning that he gives, beginning in verse 17 of Romans 16. So listen as I read. I urge you, brothers, to watch out. That's warning language, right? Watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk. And flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Now I read that and I asked myself, why would Paul say that at the close of this letter? It seems a little bit out of place, doesn't it? Why not just say, hey guys, thanks for reading my letter. I love you guys. I'll see you soon. So long, Paul. Why this passionate plea, right as he's signing off, this urging to steer clear of false teachers? Well, then I thought about it some. For 16 chapters, he's just laid out in great detail God's wonderful plan of redemption, right? To redeem a people, to save guilty sinners who are lost and redeem them and form them into a family who loves him and loves each other and knits their hearts together. 
He did that so that that church there in Rome would be grounded in truth, strengthened in their faith, that they would be full of hope, and that they would be very zealous in their love, their love for God and also their love for each other. And those are things that everyone ought to be for, right? But not everyone is for all of that, and Paul knew it. Paul knew that the one true God has an enemy. He has a sworn enemy, an adversary, and he knew that God's enemy is hell-bent on disrupting God's plan, tearing down what God has built up, and dividing what God has united. He knew the devil is on the lookout for openings, for weaknesses, for vulnerabilities, that he seeks to, to sow discord in the church in order to try and destroy the work of God, in order to try and decimate our witness to the world, in order to make God look weak. He wants to rob God of his glory, and Paul knew all that. He was very well aware that one of Satan's most effective strategies and means of doing that is to use certain of his people, people who are under his sway, to go out and spread an alternative message, a counterfeit gospel, a message that twists and distorts the true gospel of God. You follow me on this? The Bible calls those people false teachers. And Paul knew that Satan would be busy trying to undermine all of his good work with this church, these people that he loved dearly. He was concerned they might be drawn away from the truth by these smooth talkers. And so he cautions them about it. He basically says, watch out for those slick operators with their nice sounding sermons. Identify them, mark them, call them out. Know that they are false teachers. In verse 18, he says, don't, don't be naive. Don't be like those people who are just following along with those people who are being duped by their feel-good sermons. He says, if you hear a guy teaching something that sounds different from the gospel that I just laid out for you in the book of Romans, no matter how dynamic they are, no matter how charismatic they are, no matter how engaging they are, he says, watch out for them. They're deceivers. They're phonies. Stay away from them. Keep your distance. Do not let them influence your thinking. This kind of warning against being deceived by false teachers is serious business with the Apostle Paul. It's a recurring theme throughout a number of his letters that he was writing to those young first century churches tells us that while God has his people everywhere, guess what? Satan has his people everywhere too, seeking to go around and undo the work of God. Listen to some of the warnings that Paul gives to several of those churches. In Acts 20, it's recorded what he said to the elders of the church at Ephesus as he was getting ready to leave them. He said this to them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away after them. Therefore, be alert. To the church in Corinth, he wrote this, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. 
So he says, the servants of Satan wear a mask, right? Wear a disguise. They don't have horns. They don't carry pitchforks. They look like God's preachers on the outside, but they're not. That's why he says, don't be naive about them. And then how about this in the church, uh, his writing to the churches of Galatia, he said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort, twist the gospel of Christ. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should come and preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Wow, Paul writes them and says, look, if, if, if I come back and preach a message to you that's different than the gospel I initially preached to you, throw me out. Throw me out. There's only one true gospel. These are strong words, aren't they? Why so strong? Here's why. Because Paul knew what was at stake if people turn away from the one true gospel. He knew what was at stake. And really, in talking like this so sternly, he was really just taking his cues from who? From the Lord. Didn't Jesus Christ himself issue similar warnings? Think about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 when he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, right? but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them. You will know them by their fruits, their lifestyle. Man, this is a strong warning, isn't it? Now, I am so glad that false teachers were relegated to that era, right? To back in the first century. I mean, there are not today, in our day, any smooth-talking, smiling, super-engaging, nice-sounding preachers who distort the true gospel, are there? On the internet? On their podcasts, on television, pastoring our churches. It pains me to say it, but there are churches right here in our own city that you can go to. And if you do, you won't hear much about Jesus Christ and Him crucified, buried for the forgiveness of our sins and risen for our justification and ascended on high as the living Lord reigning over all. You won't hear much about that, sadly. You might hear about Jesus as your personal life coach to help you live a more successful life or something like that. In his final words here, Paul urges his readers to avoid false teachers like the plague. Keep away from them, he says. Don't let their sermons captivate you. Don't be naive about their motives. They're not serving Christ, he says, even though they claim to be. Don't believe them. They're just serving their own appetites. Like he says in Philippians 3 about the same group of people, he says, their God is their belly. They're just feeding their own fleshly appetites. They're imposters, posers, they're peddling a counterfeit gospel. And if you buy into them, he says, if you buy into their message, if you start following them, if you become captivated by them, you are naive. In verse 19, he says, look, if you want to be naive about something, be naive about this. Be naive about evil, he says. Be simple concerning that which is evil. Be a simpleton when it comes to wickedness, to error, to heresy, to bad stuff. 
And if people think you're weird because you don't have any personal experience with darkness and with evil and with sin, that's okay. It's okay. Be weird for Jesus. Be a fool for Christ, as Paul says. Being inexperienced with sin is okay. You see, you don't need to experience something dark to know that it's evil. You don't. Not if you know the truth. Not if you've been immersing your mind in the truth of God's word. Because if you've been doing that, then your spiritual senses, it's, the Bible says, have been trained to discern good from evil without having to experience it firsthand. You can sniff it out a mile away. So he says, go ahead and be a novice in worldly ways. Be a non-expert in sinful practices. Seek to be experienced in goodness. Become an expert in that, he says, in what is beautiful and true and godly. And just a quick word of clarification about Game of Thrones, which I mentioned in a sermon a couple weeks ago. And a number of people have, so I have not seen it, so a number of people have let me know the nature of that show and some of the kinds of scenes. And no, we cannot make blanket statements because it is a gray area, you know, that automatically you're, you're sinning if you watch it. But if someone asked me, you know, is this going to help my walk with God? Is this going to help my spiritual walk? Is this going to help me live a holy life for God? I'd really have a hard time advocating for it. And I just want you to know that. Be innocent of what is evil, he says. In verse 19, he basically says, look, your reputation is stellar. People all, everywhere I go, in the region, all around, you're known for your obedience to Christ, for loving what is good, and that brings me great joy. So he says, basically, if you were, if you were to get deceived into following the wrong people and end up being swayed away from faithfulness to the gospel of Christ, that would be a travesty, that would be tragic. To be swayed away from the gospel and to be swayed away from living a holy life for Jesus would end up not only tarnishing their good reputation, but also reflecting on the God whose name they name. And Paul was doing everything in his power to prevent that. So, wow, this is good, isn't it? There's a good word in here for us, wouldn't you agree? And listen, you, you need to understand this. I need to understand. This is love. To talk to people like this, even though it's stern, even though it sounds a little bit harsh, it's loving. It's a loving thing for someone to warn us about error, right? I mean, if we're traveling down the road and someone knows the bridge is out further on down the road and they're waving at us saying, no, no, don't go this way. Take an alternate route. Take a detour. It could save your life. That's a loving thing for them to do to warn us about danger ahead. Yes? It's loving to do that. And pastors who love their people are going to say things like this on occasion for their good, for your good. There's a warning here, but he follows it up with a promise. You see it? It's really a declaration of victory. Verse 20, say it with me. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Amen. <laughs> in other words, in the end, God wins. Jesus wins. And we who know Jesus, we who are God's people, we win too. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet, he says. Isn't that good? We participate in his triumph over the evil one. His victory is our victory. God will crush Satan. Does that language sound familiar? Crushing Satan? Does your mind go back, back, back 
like mine does, to Genesis chapter 3, where it says that Satan will bruise your heel, but God will crush his head. Remember that scene in the Passion of the Christ where Jesus stomps on the skull of that serpent and crushes him? It was gory, but wonderful. Yes. God will one day crush the head of the serpent, Satan. That was his pledge that the devil's schemes will not ultimately succeed. The master deceiver will suddenly, swiftly be cut off and crushed. That's probably a better translation of the word soon here. The God of peace will soon. Probably better translated suddenly, swiftly, in short order, quickly crush Satan. And we can read about his demise in the book of Revelation. Chapters 19 and 20. In fact, let me read the end of the story for you. This is from John's vision of the future. The Apostle John, recorded in the book of Revelation. It says this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet already were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Wow, so we know the end of the story, right? God wins, Jesus wins, and we who are his people win too. There's coming a day when all the accusing will end, when all the tempting will end, when all of the tormenting will end, when all of the deceiving will end. All of those have an expiration date. And Satan will be disposed of finally for good and will live in eternal bliss with our Lord and Savior and with our spiritual family forever and ever without fleshly sin and temptation and all of that. Praise God. And that should strengthen our hearts, shouldn't it? With joy, with faith. It does mine. So this too is the truth of the gospel. And that victory declaration, that promise is followed by a final benediction. The end of verse 20, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Don't you love that? He's saying there's grace available to us. And you know what grace is in its simplest definition? Really, grace is what you need from God. That's what grace is. What you really need from God, that is grace. His supply, His abundant supply for your need and my need. And so when someone needs to be saved from their sins, needs to be forgiven of their sins to avoid eternal judgment, they need saving grace, don't they, from God. When someone needs strength to persevere through a difficult time, a difficult season in their life, and continue to cling to Christ, they need God's sustaining grace. And like we've been reading about here, if somebody needs to be able to figure out if what they're hearing on a podcast is really the truth, or if it's off a few degrees There is this grace also, we could call it discerning grace, the ability to see through phoniness. How good it is to know that we can have a part in activating God's grace in the lives of other people. This is a prayer, really, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. You can pray for others that God would pour his grace into their lives, whatever they need for what they're going through. Isn't that good? And then following that, Paul offers some final greetings from Christian brothers who were there with him as he was writing this letter. Some of these names we've heard of, others are new to us. So there's some final greetings here, beginning in verse 21. He says, Timothy, heard of him? 
Yeah, one of Paul's um, mentorees, son in the faith, man he was training for ministry. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sisipater, good name for your next baby, my relatives or my kinsmen. So that means they were, Jason and Sisipater were probably fellow Jews. Some of the others are Gentiles, so Paul had both as friends. Verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe you thought Paul was feverishly penning this letter himself. No, he had a secretary. He had a personal assistant. He was dictating the letter to Tertius, right? And Tertius wants to be mentioned, so he puts his name in here. Hey, I'm, I'm writing all this down. I send my greetings too. Can you imagine having that job? I wonder how long it took Paul to dictate this letter. Was it a day? Was it a week? I wonder how many drafts went in the wastebasket. I wonder how many rewrites of sentences he did, you know. For many have sinned and fall. No, no, scratch that. For all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Tertius, Paul's personal assistant, sends his greetings. Verse 23, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Never underestimate or demean the value of the gift of hospitality. Welcoming people into your home, blessing them in that way. It is a wonderful, wonderful gift. And Gaius expressed that gift. And then Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, so now government officials are coming to Christ and become part of the community there. And our brother Cordus sends you their greetings. So I read that and it's evident to me that Paul was not in this alone, right? He was surrounded by a band of brothers, right? At least at this time in his ministry. These guys had his back. They were there with him. They shared his passion for the gospel. They shared his faith in Christ. They shared his mission. They were supporters and encouragers of Paul, devoted brothers in Christ who loved God and loved Paul. How good is it to, to have people like that in your life. Do you have anybody like that? Do you have some like-minded kindred spirits around you in your life? I need that. I believe you need that. It's one reason we have small groups and hold them in such high regard here and promote them a lot so that those kinds of relationships can be facilitated so that we can all have people that we're walking through life together with and we can be supportive of each other, especially when we're going through challenging times, right? So these final greetings. And then he's about to finish with a flourish. He's about to lift our gaze up to the heavens one last time so we can marvel at God, marvel at his glory, and marvel at his great plan. And here's how he does it. He does it with a final doxology. It begins in verse 25, and he writes this, or he has Tertius write this. <laughs> now to him who is able to establish you. We'll talk about that. To him who is able or who has the power to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation or the revealing of the mystery that's been hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through 
Jesus Christ, amen. And that's how it ends. We call this a doxology, and I love doxologies. Now, some of you who grew up in church, you grew up singing the doxology, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, O creatures. We call that the doxology, but, but doxology, the word actually comes from two Greek words, doxa and logos. Doxa means glory, and logos means word or message or saying. So a doxology, puts those together, is a word of glory, an expression of worship, a praise saying that ascribes glory to God. And there are a number of doxologies contained in the Scriptures. And so the writers of the Scripture, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, on occasion, in the midst of their writing, would just burst into praise. And they'd write it down for us to participate in with them. Sometimes it was in the middle, sometimes it was at the end. A few years ago, I spent a whole month just studying the many doxologies found in the Scriptures. I want to share some of my favorites with you, can I? How about Revelation 1.5? Don't you love Revelation 1.5? What is it, you ask? Is it up there? There it is. To Him who loves us. Amen. Amen. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How about this one from Ephesians 3? This, this is a favorite to many of you. Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. A lot of these doxologies begin the same way. Do you see that? Now unto him, now unto him. Jude 24, I've spoken this over you before as a final benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling or keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. The book of Hebrews ends like this. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We've already encountered a doxology in the book of Romans. It was back at the end of chapter 11 when Henry Goulet was with us. And that section ends like this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What does amen mean? So be it. Or yes. <laughs> or I'm all in with that. May it happen as it has been spoken. Amen. But I think this doxology here at the conclusion of Romans is one of the most beautiful in all the Bible. It lifts up praise to God for his marvelous and very wise plan, his gospel plan. There's a couple of interesting things about it that scholars have picked up on it. There's a parallel between 
what's in this doxology and what is at the very beginning of the book of Romans. It's like their bookends. Same themes appear in Romans 1 and here at the end of Romans 16, like being strengthened and established by the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 2, and now here in 16.25. The gospel unveiling a mystery that's been hidden for ages, but promised in ages past. Again, early in chapter 1 and here at the end. Predicted by the Old Testament scriptures, same thing. The fact that the gospel is centered in this man, this person, Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 and verse 3, chapter 16, verse 25. And also that the gospel produces obedience in those who believe it. That's said in both places. And that it's for all nations. Chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 16, verse 26. So you see this? Bookends? Summarizing all that's in between? Beyond that, many scholars see that this doxology captures... Three of the major themes of the book of Romans that are woven all throughout the book of Romans. And I'd like to just spend a minute or two on each one and talk about these for a moment. Because the doxology begins this way. Now unto him who is able to what? Establish you by my gospel. So we learn that the gospel establishes people. And we've seen this all throughout the book of Romans, especially in those early chapters And the word established here simply means to be firmly grounded, to have both feet planted on something solid, to be steadfastly set in an immovable position, to be stabilized, and thereby to have a mind that is settled. So it talks about your position, your stance, but then it it refers to what's going on in your mind. So Paul says God is able, he has the power to ground us in what is solid, with the result that our minds can rest in confidence that we are stable and we are secure and we are settled. Because you know what? When someone doesn't know the truth of the gospel, they're unsettled. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're sitting here in church today and the truth about you is that you're unsure of things. You don't feel planted on something solid. You're, You're uncertain. You're unsettled about where you stand, about where your place is in the world. Maybe you're unsettled about where you stand with your creator. Maybe you're unsure and unsettled about your future. And then the future beyond your future, the future after this life. Many people are uncertain about those things. But then for many, then the gospel comes into their life. And if they believe that gospel from the depths of their being... God releases his power into their lives and it causes them to feel grounded then and established and settled because now, because of their faith in Christ, they know where they stand. They know what their place is in the world. They know their mission. They have a holy ambition now. They know what they're about and their mind rests at ease and at peace with that. Does that make sense? That's the power of the gospel in a person's life. You can experience that settledness today, that being established and grounded by placing your faith in Christ. The gospel has the power to establish people. Second, it says that this gospel proclaims good news in a person, in Jesus Christ. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation, the proclaiming, the declaring of Jesus Christ. So Paul here is really exulting and rejoicing in the reality that God's good news is found in Jesus and only in Jesus. What does the word gospel mean? Good news, right? Good news. 
The gospel is the good news that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. That God has done for us what no one else could do for us. He has made a way, right? He's made a way for rebellious, sinful, self-focused, self-sufficient, self-promoting, dare I say self-worshipping people who thought we could be our own God. He has made a way for us, for people like me and people like you, to be made right with Him, to be justified before Him, to be forgiven of all of our sins, to avoid being judged. But listen, it's all through Jesus, and it's only through Jesus. Didn't He stand up one day and say, I am the way? There is no good news for humanity apart from Jesus Christ, apart from Him coming to earth, apart from Him living that beautiful, sinless perfect, loving life that we should have lived, apart from him dying as a substitute in our place, taking our sins, our wrongdoing upon himself and receiving the punishment of God for our sins. He's the, are, how, how aware are we that he's the only one qualified to do that? I couldn't die on the cross for your sins. I mean, I could Try, I guess, but I've got my own sins that need paid for. I've got my own sins in my life that deserve judgment. I can't die for your sins. No sinful person could die for your sins. It took a sinless substitute to do that in a way that satisfied God, right? And there's only ever been one. I was talking to a person this week. I mean, how many times do you hear this? You know, I'm not perfect. There's only ever been one. And yet, he offered himself. He's, he, he was not forced into it. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would he allow himself to be executed, to suffer and bleed out and die? Is it not love Amen. to him who loved us? met with a gal in our church last week. She said, you know what, Pastor Steve? I need to hear often that God loves me. Just where I've been in life, I need to hear that God loves me. I pray a prayer just about every day. It's called the daily prayer. And part of it, one of the sentences in the prayer is, thank you for proving your love for me in so many ways, but especially through sending Jesus Christ to die for me. Because that, that solved my biggest problem, right? <laughs> that I was alienated from God. Friends, this is the good news, and it's only found in Jesus. It's only found in Jesus. And it occurred to me that if you've been tracking with us through Romans, and you've sat here through a lot of these sermons in Romans, and you've been thinking to yourself, you know what, I'm going to get saved one of these Sundays while we're preaching in Romans. Guess what? This is it. This is your last opportunity to put your trust in Christ, to transfer your trust from yourself fully to Him, and his sacrifice for you from a sermon in the book of Romans, because after today, we're done. So I would urge you, don't wait. Don't wait. Give your life to Christ wholly, totally, completely today. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Only through Jesus. You know what? Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. Without Jesus, humanity is mired in bad news, lost in sin, separated from God forever. 
And you know what? The gospel only sounds like good news, like really good news, like exceedingly good news to those who understand their actual plight before a holy God. When you get that, then the gospel sounds like really good news. Grace sounds amazing then. So I urge you to run to Jesus and cast yourself on him if you never have. And then finally, the third theme we see in this doxology is the gospel reveals a mystery that's been hidden for the ages. It uncovers a mystery. It says, according to the revealing, the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God who said, now's the time, first century, I'm going to uncover this mystery so that everybody understands, so that all nations might believe and obey him. And that's it. That's the mystery revealed in the gospel. It was a truth that was hidden back in Old Testament times. It was obscured. This mystery, what was it? That all nations can be saved. Amen? Amen. Not just Jewish people, but thank God the gospel is for Gentiles too. Gentiles like me. Gentiles like the vast majority of you. The gospel reveals that the eternal God is forming one family made up of Jews and Gentiles through their faith in Christ, brought into one family, one body. That was a new thought to most people back in that day. But Jesus and then his apostles made it very clear, Jesus' death was for all peoples. Amen? Amen. All peoples. That's what we learn in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. Everybody can be forgiven of their sins. Everybody could stand righteous before God one day because Jesus died for Jews and Gentiles. He is the Savior of the world, the Bible says. Jesus is for all the peoples of the earth. You've heard me say this, right? Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, young and old, male and female, Democrat and Republican. Jesus' sacrifice was enough to cover the sins of everyone who believes. How good is that? How good is that? No wonder Paul closes out this amazing letter by crying out to the only wise God. Be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And I too say amen. To him be the glory for sending Jesus, for making a way, for providing for forgiveness for all of my many sins and justification before him for delivering what he had demanded. That is exceedingly good news for all of humanity. And I want to leave you with two final thoughts. Here's the first one. Non-Christians need to hear this message. People who do not yet know Jesus, people who are not saved, need. this is the only message that can save them if they'll believe it with all their hearts, right? This is it. Non-Christians need to hear and believe this good news from the depths of their being. It's the only way to be saved. Should we not as believers be praying that God would open up conversations, even this summer, with friends and loved ones and relatives and co-workers who don't yet know Christ? Because the good news is only found in Him. But you know what else? Christians need to hear this good news too. Christians need to hear it over and over and over again. Why? Because it reminds us that salvation is from the Lord. It's not our own doing. I could not save myself. I could not be good enough 
to merit God's favor and acceptance. I needed a rescuer from the outside to come in and save me. And so did you. And, and having that knowledge should produce some things in us, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it produce humility? Shouldn't it produce humility? Shouldn't Christians be some of the most humble people on the planet? Because we know what we deserved and we know what we needed. And we knew that salvation comes from outside of ourselves. It should produce gratefulness in us, should it not? Like, I'm alive again today? I get to breathe again today? I get to live again today? No way! This is awesome, and I'm saved? I have an eternal home in heaven and a spiritual family? Life is good, no matter what else transpires. Humility, gratefulness, heart of worship, a zealous love for our brothers and sisters in the family. Amen? passion for spreading this news far and wide and like it says here at the beginning and end of Romans a life of holy obedience to Christ listen grace produces obedience grace produces a holy lifestyle in those who've received grace that's the fruit of the gospel when it has taken root in your heart and so may we be forever changed by this book of Romans amen May this glorious message of this gospel-centered letter be forever etched in our hearts and in our minds. And in the end, may God receive all the glory for every good thing he has done in each of our lives through studying this book together.